to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. This is Rick Pashkin. I am the content guy for the ABA's business law section. Welcome to our podcast platform, To the Extent That. And today's episode entitled Business Lawyers Making a Difference, Pro Bono When Your Client is on Death Row. Our host is Judge Elizabeth Stong. Judge Stong is a U.S. bankruptcy judge in the Eastern District of New York, sitting in Brooklyn. Judge Stong, I will let you introduce our guests and have a good podcast. Rick, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be uh, with the section again and with any prospective section members to talk about uh, one of our favorite topics in the section, which is business law and pro bono. Um, Lots of you may think about that. Hopefully lots of you have done it, but I'm going to predict that not so many of you have followed the path in your pro bono life that our superstar uh, guest today, Michael Rubenstein, has followed. Um, Michael is a uh, partner at Lisco and Lewis based in Houston. He's an experienced bankruptcy practitioner, and that's how we first got to know each other in the section. He has a very diverse and very interesting commercial practice. Uh, it encompasses not only business bankruptcies and restructurings and reorganizations, but also business litigation and, and business problem solving, and from time to time, even criminal matters. Um, He's known for his efficiency. He's known for his effectiveness. Uh, but if you really get to know Michael, there's one more thing that, that you learn about him, uh, and that is that he has a deep and abiding commitment to pro bono, and not just any pro bono, but pro bono that is maybe a little unusual for um, a business bankruptcy lawyer. We'll get to that uh, in just a moment. But Michael, first, thank you for joining us. And tell us just a little bit about, about the rest of your practice, uh, your bankruptcy and your commercial litigation practice. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I began my career, I've been with Lisco and Lewis for over 25 years now. I started in our New Orleans office doing you know, a little bit of everything. I, you know, I always tell the young lawyers when you're when you're first starting out, your clients are the are the partners who pass out work. And I decided I would make my name by not saying no. So I kind of <laughs> did a little bit of everything and over time gravitated to doing a lot of business bankruptcy work and also you know, because I, I suppose it proves a little bit of my own mental illness. I did business bankruptcy work, business litigation, and back in the day, a fair amount of white collar criminal law um, and uh, have continued to do most of that, although less criminal law these days. I moved to Houston about 15, 16 years ago and have you know been doing mainly business litigation and business bankruptcy, a lot of oil and gas related stuff over the years. Now, a piece of that picture was a clerkship um, uh, back in, in 93, 95. Tell us just a little bit about that. Sure. I clerked for uh, Judge Edith Brown Clement, who she is now on the Fifth Circuit. Uh, when I clerked for her, she was a district judge, relatively new district judge in the Eastern District of Louisiana. Um, there had not been an appointment to that bench in a number of years. 
Um, and the court at that point had a very heavy trial docket. So I clerked for two years. Uh, it was the best decision of my life was just to, 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 to agree to do a two-year clerkship because I got to work on cases, both criminal and civil, work on the same case from the day it was filed until judgment was rendered. And kind of felt like if you only did it for a year, you got to work on cases to judgment, but they weren't the cases that you worked on at the beginning. So it was a it was a great experience and gave me a, the ability to kind of hit the ground running when I got into practice. It's just a wonderful point about the breadth of experience that you get in a federal clerkship, whether district or bankruptcy court. Um, I wonder if maybe you get a little bit of, of a sense of the importance of the justice system and how uh, it, it it is only ever as good as the justice it provides to the to the least among us. Um, and I guess I'll take that as my pivot to your absolutely fascinating work in your pro bono life representing um, death row um, death row people. Um, and tell us tell us tell us about that and and how that got started. Sure. Well, in reference to you know what, seeing the justice system working when I was a clerk. The good part about being a federal law clerk is you're in a system that's pretty well funded. Um, you know, everyone is entitled to a, pub, a public defender um, who is compensated and and qualified, and that's generally true. Um, that's not always true in the state court system, and that's sort of how we got involved in our, our capital post conviction case. I was a, a you know senior associate about to make partner. Um, when, and we, we, we did some criminal work. I had done a, my first ever trial was second chairing a federal murder case. That's not typical of my firm, but that was, that was how I started out. And, but that, you know, it was not a, it was not a, a, a death sentence eligible case. And it was not a, uh, case where I'd really worked on those issues, but, you know, after the passage of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which really restricted the ability of the federal courts to, you know, to their review to what, ha you know, the record from the state courts, two federal district judges in the Eastern District of Louisiana approached my firm. They approached others as well, but they definitely approached us and said, it is very important to us that when these cases get to us after they have been litigated in state court, that we be able to, we have a record we can rely on, and that requires that they have good lawyers. And there is no, or at least at that time, there was no funding for post conviction counsel. You get counsel through your direct appeal that's paid for, but you you have no constitutional right to effective assistance of counsel in the post conviction phase. Um, so they came to our firm, asked us to do it. Came, we went to the straight to the top of the firm, and there was a reaction that you know we're not going to tell federal judges no, but uh, they came to the two of us who were doing criminal law at the time, and neither one of us was terribly enthused about it. Quite frankly, one we knew the the, the scope of the undertaking. I had some misgivings about uh, maybe become you know allowing my professional work to become the essentially the grease that lubricates the, you know, the capital, the capital punishment machine, I, regardless of which way you think about the issues it you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to be the reason somebody made it to death row, but the firm decided to take the case. They decided that we would partner with another firm. There would be two senior partners from my firm working on it. And I would not be assigned to it. They were, they assigned a staff attorney thinking, you know, might not be the best thing for me to get 
sucked into a case like that at that point in my career. We took the case within a month. The staff attorney had taken another job. I don't think it was for this reason. I think that was already in the works. And I agreed to fill in. And after about 10 or 12 years, it was pretty much my case. You know, one thing leads to another. I'm going to go back to something you said at the outset that you made your name uh, in practice uh, by not saying no. And maybe this was an example of that. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the issues in that case and what it led you to, um, what kind of experiences you had with your client and with the courts. Sure. Um, our client had been uh, convicted of robbing and killing an auto parts uh, delivery truck driver in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the mid-90s. Our client was at the time barely 18 years old. Um, we knew pretty much from the beginning we didn't have an actual innocence case. There really wasn't a lot of dispute that he had a gun, that he robbed the that he robbed the driver and that in the course of the robbery the gun went off and the and the driver was killed there were some very significant questions however about whether it was a first degree murder case under the louisiana law which requires you know a, an intentional killing in the course of an enumerated felony it was an enumerated felony because it was armed robbery but whether whether the killing was intentional as opposed to you know what we think think of as more felony murder um was was to us an open question but he, you know and the real problem was he didn't have very good counsel at trial um you know i we i read every piece of the record i read trial counsel's file i talked to the client extensively um it was pretty clear that they weren't really up to the challenge of of a full blown death penalty case they didn't they didn't for example you know, even consult with a ballistics expert or any, you know, which would have been key to the client's story of, hang on, I slipped and the gun went off. I didn't intend to pull the trigger, um, you know, bu bullet pathway and blood spatter, you know, not to be too gruesome, were, were key elements that were never explored. And quite frankly, they didn't do a very much of a good job of pre preparing a mitigation case, which anybody who does death penalty work will tell you that's at least half the job, if not more. Um, so we we dove in, we took the case, knowing we didn't have any funding for expert witnesses and all that. My firm stepped up to the plate and agreed to uh, and agreed to to subsidize those expenses and to give those of us who were working on the case credit for doing so because it was wasn't wasn't the only case I worked on during those years, but there were months where it took almost all my time. Um, we were assigned, you know, the, the federally funded death penalty resource centers had been defunded at that point, but the folks who used to work in those offices kind of remained available and we had folks supporting us. And then there was a, co a community of defenders handling similar cases in Louisiana and we met with them. And so we had, we had some support, but we were definitely doing, you know, treading new ground for, you know, for a bunch of civil lawyers, um, you know, the, and it's not just an academic exercise. There's a human being involved. And it's not just that you know this intellectually. He's your client. You've got to go meet him because you know, he's got to trust you and it's his case. So he was incarcerated at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, which is an interesting place to go if you've never been to such a place. And I can't count the number of times I went up there just to, to meet with him for an hour or two both to make sure that he understood that we were we were working on his case. And, you know, at times you have to ask difficult questions. So we we dove into all of that. 
Um, and, and then an interesting thing developed, which was we were having lots of hearings. The state was urging that we had to get moving on the case. And we were like, we don't have any, we don't have the experts we need. We don't have the evidence we need. We need time. And one of our arguments we made was uh, that, you know, the state needed to fund his his experts, not because there's a constitutional right, but because the state of Louisiana had made a decision when they were flush with sales tax revenues after Hurricane Katrina to provide funding for some inmates on death row, those who were represented by a pro bono outfit that was a contractor with the state that had agreed to take these cases. If you got one of their lawyers, you, who was quite frankly being paid by the state, you also got money access to an, a pot of expert money. And I raised the issue early on, isn't that an arbitrary distinction because it's random who gets outside pro bono counsel and who gets uh, the state funded counsel. And there were a lot of people who didn't want me to bring this up because they were afraid it might just blow up the funding system as a whole. But there was so much pressure on us to get the case moving and we needed to, to slow the process down that I and some others on my team said, we got to bring this up. And so we were thinking about it. We had put the issue before the court, but it wasn't really teed up for a hearing. We went up to Baton Rouge before a very good state district court judge who you know, clearly cared about the case, but also cared about moving his docket. And we were just having a status conference. I was the junior lawyer on the file. I wasn't, I was just supposed to be kind of saying, here's where we are. We'll come back later and tell you what, how, how we made progress. And the state really argued for, you know, setting a trial date moving forward. And we urged the denial of equal protection due to the funding issue not thinking it was really going to get brought up that day. And the judge said, I want to have a hearing on this right now. Right now. Right now. Oh, that my day. goodness. I remember walking down the hallway looking for witnesses. I found the state, po the, the parish, it was because it was in Louisiana, so no counties. The parish public defender put him on the stand, found someone on the indigent defense board who happened to be in court, put him on the stand. And ultimately, we got to, you know, to have that hearing. And I remember sitting outside the, on, on the courthouse steps at lunch eating my sandwich and, you know, the senior partners who really didn't, they were, they had done no criminal work in their career and they wandered over like, are you okay? And you need anything? I'm like, I've never felt more like a lawyer in my life. Oh my goodness, Michael. That's wonderful. And by the way, at the end of the day, the judge held that, that to proceed with, with, uh, with this case would be a denial of equal protection and due process. And then he dared the Supreme Court to let, to let it happen. He said, I'm going to stay the case for 30 days. And if the Supreme Court doesn't intervene, I'm going to, I'm going to have a uh, have a hearing. And so it ultimately went up to the Supreme Court and then the state found money. Well, that's a pretty good start for a Roto uh, case in the toughest circumstances. I'm thinking about what you're describing. You've got to know your client. You've got to have a uh, relationship that included trust with your client. Not an easy situation when your uh, client's uh, uh, convicted of a capital offense and, and sentenced to death. You 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 thought big. You thought outside the box. And when I'm going to come back to what you said, um, uh, you didn't say no. And the judge said, "Well, we're going to hold a hearing right now." There are lawyers who might say, and this could be a thoughtful response. Maybe some would even say the cautious and prudent response. Well, you know, judge, we need some time to prepare for that. I myself, as a judge, would probably allow that. But are there are there lessons you learn from how you? dove into that case and represented that client that you think of more general application for 
for, for lawyers, for business lawyers? Tell me about that. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I can't say that I didn't ask for more time. I know I didn't get it, <laughs> I but I but I, I'm not. I can't swear I didn't ask for it. Uh, I feel certain I pro- that I did. But it there's so many lessons that you can learn from a case like this. And you say you know building trust. You have to build trust with all of your clients, but it's particularly difficult when your client has been convicted. Obviously, feels like the system is against him. Whether or not the conviction was just or not, I think that's a natural feeling. And he is on death row, so he's in a cell 23 hours a day by himself. You know, it's a unique environment. You could, we yeah. were allowed to talk on the phone, yeah. but you had to go up there because if he didn't see you, he was never going to trust you. So I thought just as a foundational matter, dealing with clients in difficult circumstances and being able to empathize with them, whether or not you agree or not is irrelevant. You've got to understand where they are and meet them there. The other thing was that just I think that, you know, being in court and dealing with, with that with that case, that that one day was just an example of having to deal with whatever comes up. That's what we have to do as lawyers. I mean, I don't you know, I practice in bankruptcy court just where you are every day. And there are times when you wind up in there and you know the, the thing's got to move fast because there's a melting ice cube of an asset and you've got to get moving and. You may not you, you may not be as prepared as you'd like to be, but you still have to do your job. And that was the that was a big lesson in that case. And with the highest imaginable stakes, it, it's I, I I keep coming back to that. Your commitment to these issues um, extended beyond that case. Um, you you served on and then chaired the ABA's death penalty representation project. Uh, how is this? This set of issues, the highest possible stakes. Again, the system is only good as the treatment and the representation it affords to those who are in the weakest position. Um, how has it continued to inform the way you think about your practice and, and our profession? Well, I mean, I think that not everyone is going to be comfortable taking on a post-conviction case. But, you know, I think we all as professionals have a, an obligation to perform pro bono work, to, to serve the underserved. And that can be taking a case. I mean, the first pro bono case I ever took was a, I, I took, I, I threatened to take a case over an, or, or an automobile shop that had done a poor job on a woman's uh, auto, uh, car transmission. And I threatened to take it to trial and I deposed the mechanic for eight hours before he settled. Um, you know, those people. Need Michael, represent- you are tough. Well, those people need need representation too. I mean, if the, sure the, the assumption was that she couldn't get a lawyer, so even though when she filed suit pro se and everything, they weren't going to, they didn't deal, they didn't take her seriously. And when we got when we stepped in, they didn't take her seriously still because they're like nobody's going to spend any time on this. There's not enough money here to justify what they're going to have to do to get us to a judgment. And those are all perfectly logical ways to approach a case from a defendant standpoint. But from a human standpoint, they're not. And sometimes you have to you know, do those kind of things. And those are the kind of things that make you feel better as a lawyer. And I think you become a better cl- a lawyer for your paying clients because you've learned how to think outside the box. I mean, we're so used to the case comes in. We've got this much money to spend on this. We've got this much money to spend on that. We do the same things again and again. And don't think about, you know, hang on, what's the client's goal here? And what's the what's the most effective method of getting there. And I think pro bono work really forces you to think about that because you don't have the resources and you you have to kind of, you know, be a little more inventive. And then when you Thank turn you. to, you know, you can also do meaningful work if you're not, not even doing an actual representation. 
I considered it the privilege of my career to be allowed to serve on the on the death penalty uh, representation project steering committee and then to chair that committee for four years. I told the staff when when my term was over. That's the way I felt about it. It was the honor of a lifetime. They are doing some of the most important work, making sure that those charged with the most serious offenses actually get lawyers. Um, it's not popular. You know, it's probably not going to help you. You know, in your in, in your campaign for the United States Senate, it may not help you become a become a judge at some point. Those things have been used against people over the years, but it's important. And another role that you've had, and you've had so many, is you were managing partner of your firm's Houston office. Uh, how do you how do you share this perspective on the profession, which is so important? So tremendously important. I say this sitting at my desk in chambers in a courthouse. Um, how do you think we share that with others and be sure that they understand that maybe the excitement they had about helping people who really need help but may not know how to get help, um, that that it's not only okay to care about that and do it, but important to care about that and do it. How do you how do we how do we get that word out and pass that along? Well I mean I- For example, at my firm, the youngest lawyers are entitled to, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but they're entitled to bill a certain amount to pro bono files where they're actually getting real experience and then get billable credit for it. Um, So that's a step my firm's taken. But the next step of that is, you know, we don't send junior lawyers out generally to handle cases by themselves without at least access to senior lawyers. And as much as I hate to think of myself as a senior lawyer, I seem to have gotten to that point. it's important that even though they're getting credit for it and you're not, because that's not the way the, the way the system's set up, to be available to work with them on those cases. They're willing to take those cases on if they're not being, you know, kind of sent out there without any kind of, you know, life raft. So I I have represented uh, clients, you know, in non-criminal cases and pro bono things. And I, I handled a pro bono uh, contested adoption by a grandmother a few years ago. Um, one of the junior lawyers in my firm was completely devoted to it, but she'd never done anything like that. You know, there were experienced counsel on the other side fighting her. And so, you know, I went with her to the depositions. She took them um, and, and that sort of thing. And there was a role for me and there was a role for her. I think you have to, as a senior lawyer, demonstrate that it's not just that we say that, that the commitment to a pro bono is important, but I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be there with you. What a thought. Uh, I want to ask a hard question because I know our listeners will be thinking about it too. Um, How did that first um, post-conviction representation case work out? It actually worked up, you know, as as good as you could expect. I mean, we, we, as I said, we didn't have an actual innocence case. We knew we weren't looking at, you know, you know, finding a piece of DNA evidence or something that was like you're going to see on TV and the guy and the, we were going to meet the client outside of jail. But we we worked hard. We had we actually had an evidentiary hearing eventually where we presented evidence that both of grand jury discrimination and evidence that that should have been presented at the mitigation phase to explain that he was not just learning disabled, but developmentally disabled not not to the level that the Supreme Court would say the death penalty wasn't eligible, but the jury the jury needed to hear that, and they never did. So we presented all of that. It was and, and I put the educational psychologist on the stand who who was just the best witness ever. Um, and we got to the end of that, and the state asked for for a recess so they could consider the next steps. 
and they reached out to us with a uh, somewhat strange deal, but we essentially worked out a settlement agreement where he, uh, you know, he, our client is no longer subject to to the death sentence. He was removed from death row. Um, the client, quite, quite frankly, is an, you know, an interesting guy. I'm not sure he, what he could have achieved outside of prison, but he has achieved an enormous amount in the prison. A guy with serious developmental disability disabilities who had real learning challenges when he got on death row decided he was going to get his GED. It's the first person in the history of the Louisiana State Penitentiary to get his death his GED while on death row. He has since gotten a college degree and is a and is a prison chaplain now. Michael, are you still in touch? Periodically, it's it's not it's not as easy to get in touch with him when I'm not. Uh, you know, when I can't call the prison and say, I, you know, I have a, a case related reason to talk to him and it's not easy to get up there. But uh, I talked to him about a year or so ago, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, and he had actually been transferred to a local jail to serve as that jail's chaplain. Uh, I, I need to follow up, but I but I will admit I've been a little dilatory since then. Michael, you saved his life. You and your colleagues saved his life and you gave him back his life. Um and I can't imagine how much good has come from that. Maybe you had the best witness ever, but you're on my short list with this uh, uh, with this or best lawyer ever. Thank you for what you do and how you inspire us. And uh, again, again, every every time I speak with you about this, I I, I feel the same way. Uh, one last question: What advice would you offer to someone thinking about getting way outside their comfort zone in doing some pro bono work? And, and I have in mind especially a business lawyer, a really good business lawyer. But they know there's something else they want to do with their with their legal skills and, and commitment. I would say there's, there's there is a role for everyone in pro bono, whether and if you're talking about the uh, the, the post conviction work or actual death penalty work, those are those are cases handled by teams. Um, you don't have to be Clarence Darrow to take on such a case. There's a role for you. But if that's not your comfort zone and you really want it, I mean, Lord knows there are plenty of people who you know, have business problems that need someone to just look at a contract, you know, help them clear title to something. There are all kinds of things out there that people, that real people with real problems need help with. And I think there's a role for everyone. And maybe you won't save their life literally as you have in your cases, but you will sure change it. And if that isn't, if that isn't worth doing, I don't know what is. Michael, thank you so very much for everything you've done and everything you do. And also for your time today. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.